The Standard Deviations Podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. When was the last time you splurged on something when you knew it probably conflicted with one of your financial goals, like paying down debt or saving for future fun in retirement? Well, if you do this, you're not alone. It's because of present bias, or to use the psychobabble term, hyperbolic discounting. As humans, we have a tendency to let the immediate rewards of the here and now win out over a desired future reality. To learn more, check out the Cash Dash Dash, a planning tool brought to you by the Guardian Network to see just how much your short-term spins might be impacting your longer-term financial goals. Play today by visiting www.livingconfidently.com slash play. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by a one-of-a-kind guest. Uh, Coach Dana Cavalia is the former director of strength and conditioning uh, and performance for the New York Yankees. He was part of the 2009 World Series winning team, and he is the author of a new book, Habits of a Champion, Nobody Becomes a Champion by Accident. Welcome to the show, Coach. Daniel, thanks for having me. So we can bond over something immediately. Um, Both of our teams were just put out of the playoffs in pretty miserable fashion. Uh, The Yankees uh, beat out by Jose Altuve in the bottom of the ninth, and the Cardinals, my team, were just absolutely murdered by the Nationals. So you uh, you have my condolences, and I know that this is a tough time for us both. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Anybody that that watched those games was, uh, especially the Yankees, you know, walk-off home run, you know, bottom of the ninth, and and, uh, after we thought we tied it up, that's that's tough. But, uh, you know, what I always say is you got to tip your cap to those teams that are advancing, and and within the game, we do that, you know, so I encourage fans to do that too. Although it hurts, you know, you got to tip your cap to the winner. Yeah, the 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 pain is real, but I think you got two exciting uh, two exciting teams in the series, two incredible pitching staffs. It should be uh, fun to watch. Exactly. So, so I, I want to jump in. Uh, you know, I am a huge baseball fan. Of course, grew up a a third generation Cardinals fan, and have come to love the Braves as well. Um, living here in Atlanta. Now, and I came by that honestly. My dad is a, a huge baseball fan, and he actually wanted to work in the business. And I grew up hearing stories from him uh, about having graduated from college and how he sent out, you know, hundreds of, of resumes and flyers and things, all snail mail in those days, basically begging minor league teams uh, and major league teams to give him a shot. He wanted to work as sort of, I think, a hype man, like marketing and promotions uh, for teams to, you know, determine when bobblehead night was or whatever. But he never, <laughs> he never got a bite, though. And then, you know, in reading your book, you had this incredible door open for you at age 19. So tell us about the door that opened for you, and how did you get your foot in the door at such a young age? Yeah, well, you know, for me, I, I wanted to actually be a player. And, um, you know, very quickly uh, in my college career, I realized that the field got smaller and the game got faster. Now, partially true the fields actually get get a little bit bigger but they say it gets smaller because the players get that much faster so balls that would have been a hit are no longer a hit you know when you're talking about high school and and college and certainly in the pros so uh ultimately i I got started by having a realization really quickly about my own talent level uh through self-assessment as well as the evaluation of professional scouts in major league baseball they said listen you're just not good enough to compete at the next level so Rather than, um, you know, endure a college career, I, I sized myself up and said, you know, what do you love to do most? And I really love training for the sport. And as somebody that relied heavily on coaching to wring out the sponge and get every uh, ounce of talent out of myself, I said, you know, why don't I look into coaching? And that's what I did, you know. So I went to the University of South Florida down in Tampa. I knew the Yankees had spring training there. And I said, you know what? I'm going to figure out a way how to get onto that big league field one way or another. And it wasn't as a player, but it, it ended up being as a, as a strength and conditioning coach. And, you know, at 19 years old, I had 
very little bullets in my gun. I had very little tools, but I had a vision and I knew what I wanted to do. And I also knew that, you know, coaching would be an unbelievably rewarding career path. So my story, it, it gets very granular here where I say, you know, I literally went up to watch the Yankees play in spring training for a practice day. I parked about a mile and a half away because I couldn't afford to park at the time. Here I am in college, college student, University of South Florida. Go up. I'm taking pictures through a chain link fence with a flip phone. Sending these pictures back home. It's February. So everyone in New York, where I'm from, is freezing. And I'm like, look at this. There's Jeter. You know, there's Pettit. There's Posada. This, so this is an amazing thing for me. And literally, I, at the time, I was also interning, cutting my teeth in the field of strength and conditioning with the University of South Florida football. And I'm not really a football guy, but I knew I, I just needed to get some experience. And I went back to my internship that day after taking those photos. The head strength coach said, Dana, listen, I just got a call from the guy with the Yankees. He's looking for a guy to basically hand out towels, hand out water, and clean the weight room. Would you have any interest in that? I said, listen, perfect timing. As a matter of fact, I just got back from the field, and I would love to do that. So he's like, well, you got to head up there tomorrow. So the next day, I literally drive back to the same field. I get a spot right up front because they knew I was coming. I walk into the main office. They say, are you Dana Cavalier? I said, yep. They threw a credential out on my neck that said C for clubhouse, F for field access, threw me in Yankee gear, and literally that field I was taking a picture of a day earlier, I was now in the middle of for team stretch. A nervous wreck, but, uh, you know, I, I had to fake it till I made it there. That's an absolutely incredible story of just being in the right place at the right time. Uh, but it's it's incredible how one day you're on the outside looking in and the next day you're there, you know, stretching with the team, like you said. Now, what's what's even more improbable to me is that by age 23, you had been promoted by Brian Cashman to, to head up strength and conditioning for what is inarguably the best resource team in Major League Baseball. Uh, no disrespect to you, but this seems like a an improbable job for someone so young how did you secure this this position? You know, you, you say it like that, but, you know, for me, I say I agree with you. I don't know if I would have hired myself as a 23-year-old, you know. Um, but but in all in all fairness, you know, one thing that, that Brian Cashman is excellent at, and I, I tip my cap to even the scout, all the scouts within our organization, is they're really good at seeing, forecasting, and projecting talent. That's what they do for a living. And, um, you know, I think I have to think that he saw something in me that I maybe didn't see, you know, fully in myself at the time. And, and, uh, you know, the one thing that I, I definitely was extremely passionate about what it is that I was doing and, and what I do now. And, uh, you know, you can't teach passion. You can't teach people to care. And that was something that, that sort of came with my package. Yeah, I think the best organizations, whether they be in the world of sports or business, get good at sizing up talent and taking bets on on high potential. So maybe even though you were young, you were a little green, uh, Cashman saw something in you, and that's a that's an absolutely incredible feather in your cap. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to get into some of the lessons you learned from your, your vantage from inside the clubhouse, but this is just a question for the baseball nerd in me, you know, something that I've thought about before. You know, the baseball player's schedule is so grueling. You've got 162 games a year. You know, it's it's very hot for much of the season. So you've got to balance, you know, saving some of that energy with, of course, staying in peak physical condition. What does the average day look like for a baseball player in terms of how hard are they working out on a game day? Yeah. Well, you know, baseball today is pretty much, you're looking at, about 11 months a year of training and preparation and we give them about a month off. So from the day the season ends for a player till, you know, again, figure four to six weeks max, that's when they get to spend time with their family, relax. And actually we want them to what we call detrain a little bit um, where their body gets just a little bit out of shape from all the training and it gives it a chance to repair and restore itself. So, you know, just so everyone knows, you know, players today are training 11 months out of the year. Uh, what it looks like, you know, come February, these guys are put through the ringer in terms of testing, assessment, evaluation, in terms of physical and mental profiling. And then we design custom programs based on their needs. So with every player, because you're dealing with asset values of 
10, 20, 30, upwards of 300 plus million dollars now, we have to get as much data and as much details as possible on the player to forecast and predict potential breakdown and injury. So what we do is we classify every player as low risk, moderate risk, and high risk. And those high risk players have much more of a demanded uh, commitment upon them than let's say somebody that, that's green. The green is, hey, they're low risk. We got to keep them bigger, you know, stronger. We have to keep them faster. We have to keep them lean. We still have to keep them healthy. But those that are in red have a much different commitment level to training, assessment, um, and what we call pre prehabilitative or injury prevention type protocol. So I'll get in now a little bit to, to what happens day to day. You know, what I tell people is, you know, a professional ball player for a seven o'clock game is at the ballpark between one and two o'clock. And that means each day you're looking at six hours of preparation prior to the game, you know, and that's something I don't think people realize, but when it comes to preparation, it's everything from, you know, heating the body up, stretching the body, adding strength to this machine, adding power to this machine, and at the same time, putting them through recovery protocols to make sure that the machine doesn't fatigue and get tired. So it's all of that together. And we do that by creating individualized and personalized programs for these players. So we're not doing P90X or we're not doing uh, these workouts or training programs that you can purchase on the internet. Everything is curated custom based on our assessments, evaluations, and what we find. Because again, we want to make sure that we are constantly assessing and analyzing risk. Very similar to what goes on in, in the financial world. So it, it's fascinating. My wife did not grow up um, watching baseball and she will give me a hard time when she'll see some, some players. I think, I think she's made comments about Prince Fielder and CeCe Sabathia historically you know, like uh, nice, nice athletes sort of sarcastically using air quotes. But now I'm going to be able to, yeah. come, now I'll be able to come back to her and say, look, you know, for every, for every hour, these guys are on the field, there's hours, you know, spent warming up, getting loose, getting ready. There's a lot more to it than, than perhaps the average fan sees. Yeah, totally. And I want to just take, take a second on that because, you know, some people see these athletes that may look out of shape, right? But some, just like the general population, there are athletes that just naturally have a predisposition to hold more body fat, much like, again, everybody in our society doesn't have the ability to be super, super lean. So what we look at, we don't just look at what a player weighs. We look at weight. We look at body fat. We look at the circumference. You know, when we measure their arms, measure their legs, measure their, their stomach, their hips, all of that. And then there's two variables that we also look at that how are you playing and how do you feel, right? If you feel good, if you're playing great, those other three sometimes don't have as much weight as people would think, you know, no pun intended. Yeah, it's a great, I think it's a great lesson for the, for the weekend warrior and for all of us who are, you know, of course, concerned about our health and fitness, that wellness is about much more than a number on the scale. And it's about knowing yourself knowing what you require, and then just seeing, you know, how are you performing day to day? Do you have the energy levels you need? Are you happy? Are you healthy? Uh, it's a great, uh, it's a great lesson, I think, for all of us. Um, in your consulting and your speaking work, Coach, you list five drivers of performance. Uh, they're mindset, training, fueling, recovery, and influence. Now, the first four made intuitive sense to me. I'm sure there's a ton of depth there that we won't go into today because we'll let people read your book or hire you. Uh, but I was pleasantly surprised to see you talk about influence. That one didn't, um, that one was a little bit of a surprise to me. And it's something that I speak a, a lot about. Can you say more there about why influence is one of your five drivers of performance? Yeah, you know, very simply, I look at it like this. You know, we talk a lot about leadership today. It's big. It's a big topic. But, you know, ultimately, I, I use this to explain influence. When you see somebody that's doing well, however you classify it, whether it's in terms of income, whether it's, wow, they lost 25 pounds, or, you know, they're performing at a high level, that person takes on the title, the true title of influencer. 
you know, not, I'm not talking Instagram or any of that sort of influence. I'm talking about a true influencer in life, um, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the family, whatever it may be. But we see these certain people in life that have a certain standard in which they live their life, number one. Or number two, they've decided to make a change and renegotiate the terms of their life so they can become more of an influence to others. So I don't believe you have to try to be an influencer or try to influence your actions day to day, your habits, your routines, and how you choose to live your life makes you one. So when example, you know, somebody, wow, this guy lost or gal lost 30 pounds. They just became an influencer to somebody that's also trying to achieve something of that nature, you know, or lose some weight if that's their, if that's their goal. So I say when you can align mindset, training, fueling, and recovery, you have your best chance of influencing others as a result of your decision to better yourself. It's great. It's a great point. A lot of my work is done with financial advisors, and I have often said that influence is the the keystone, the cornerstone of being a successful advisor because every single thing that an advisor does is at its root influence. Uh, you know, if an advisor is trying to develop new business, what is what is business development or sales, but influencing someone to part with their hard-earned money in, in exchange for whatever it is you're offering in return? You know, another big thing that advisors do is they manage client behavior, keep people from being their own worst enemy. And, you know, what is that but influencing someone to set aside greed and fear and other emotional impulses to do what's in the service of their long-term best interests. You know, what is leadership? Influencing people to work in service of a common goal. And so I'm with you that I think influence is one of the absolute, you know, top three or five uh, cornerstone type, fundamental type things that we need to learn uh, in order to be successful leaders. So uh, coach, you uh, one of the things that I loved about your book, Habits of a Champion, is that it was for a baseball geek like me, it was just full of sort of firsthand personal encounters with people that I, you know, grew up watching on TV. Um, you, you relate a story in Habits of a Champion uh, in which you were scolded uh, by the captain himself, Derek Jeter, for being snappy and defensive. Can you, can you tell us a, a little bit about that story and then give us some tips on how that led you to deepen your own self-awareness? Yeah. Well, you listen, when you're around the captain, Derek Cheater, he's really good at sizing you up pretty quickly. And I remember it was a playoff game. We were in Detroit. It was somewhat cold. Obviously, it was October in Detroit, Michigan, which is, which is a little bit chilly. And um, ultimately, he had asked me a question. And off the top of my head, I don't know the exact question, but I know that I was actually snappy on the way back. You know, I was defensive. And he called me out for being defensive. And I never saw myself as that. And it was the it was a a targeted attack that he threw at me that made me really look at myself and say, hey, why were you defensive? Maybe you are being defensive. So first, it's coming to terms with, okay, he may be right. Okay, wait, he was right. And now, what was causing that? Because so much of of life, it's so it's a reflex, you know, to what's being pushed at us, thrown at us, or coming at us. And I realized in that moment, he he was right. And what it was, ultimately, like I had said, I started at such a young age that there were times when when you'd have some doubts, you know, where you weren't 100% secure in what you were doing. And he called me out on something. And in that moment, to somewhat protect my, my stake and protect myself, that's what I came back with him at. Now, for someone that's less intuitive and 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 not the captain it may have just gone right over their head and and they would have just kept on moving but it was definitely a, a great learning and teaching moment um you know for for me in that instance and the self-analysis took me to you know distill down to hey man you got to get a little bit more comfortable in what you're doing and what are you not comfortable with and why so that off season i actually dedicated myself to becoming better at a certain skill set so I, I've talked before on the podcast about something called the psychological immune system. And this basically 
uh, keeps us actually from growth. You know, you're the same way that your regular immune system keeps illness from, from invading your body. Your psychological immune system keeps hard information from entering your mind, information that would cause you to, to view yourself as, you know, flawed or imperfect or in need of change. Um, how, if, if it's not Derek Jeter, right? If Derek J- Jeter tells me to jump, I'm going to say how high, right? So that I get that you were in sort of a, an extraordinary circumstance, but if someone, you know, our boss or a coworker or a peer or a spouse gives us feedback, do you have any tips on how we can, how we can really sit with that, listen to it and consider it rather than rejecting it out of hand? Yeah. Well, so oftentimes when we hear things that, that, we don't often hear the first thing we become is, is defensive and reactionary. And ultimately what I find is how cool is it that somebody actually cares enough to give you feedback, right? So it's, it's flipping the switch and, and not saying, Hey, I'm, I'm getting this feedback and this guy's a jerk for giving it to me. It's like, Hey, thanks so much for actually giving, um, you know, care to, to me and my situation and where I, where I'm at. And if any, that may, that person oftentimes it's just trying to make you better. So we got to listen, you know, and that's, that's what I'll say about the great, some of the greatest athletes in the world. And they are so open to coaching and they love to be coached. They want to know, Hey, how can I be better? So they're very open to that feedback, but in the, in the, in the corporate world and in many other worlds, I found that people do not take it well. They don't take feedback. Well, they immediately take it as criticism and they have a hard time seeing past the, the criticism label that they, they give it and rather seeing it as something that's constructive and how, oh, wow, okay, I didn't see that. That's what we call the blind spot. I didn't see that blind spot. Thank you for presenting that to me. And when you have that approach, it, it neutralizes everything. Well, it's a good, uh, it's instructive as, as a way to think about feedback and as a way to think about giving feedback, because I think appropriately construed and appropriately de- delivered, um, feedback is an act of love. It's an act of service that's, uh, you know, made to make the other person look good. Now, I, I think it's certainly not always received in that context, and I think it's often not given in that context. But I think right. as, an, as an aspirational thing, like to, to think about giving and receiving feedback, not in terms of being torn down, but in terms of being built up is, I think, uh, just exactly the right way to think about it. So one, one of the early chapters of, the, of your book, you, you wouldn't know that this was significant perhaps to a, to a psychologist like myself, but one of the early chapters of your book is titled, You Have to Hate to Lose More Than You Love to Win. Now, uh, what's, what was interesting to me is this tendency to, to hate loss more than you love gain is actually something that has been uh, you know, written about and codified by psychologists like myself who have found that in investors and other folks, uh, we hate to lose about two and a half times as much as we like to win. Now, I understand the point you're trying to make in your book, and it's you know perhaps a different one than, than what I'm making here. But one of the things that we observe in financial part markets is that people's hatred of losing causes them to not take enough risk, which in turn, you know, causes them to lose or at the very least underperform or, or not reach their financial goals. So how can, right. we, how can we cultivate a distaste for losing and a love of winning without becoming so risk averse in the process that we never try or never get started? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, you know, because uh, I, I see it too. In a, in a lot of people. And, you know, I find too, a lot of, a lot of athletes, um, sometimes let's just use a, a baseball player. If, if they can't throw a strike or if they, they can't, you know, hit a certain pitcher with frequency over and over again, they start to believe that, that they can't and they actually become less confident and less, and they become actually more timid in that situation. So their chance for success goes down even further. Um, you know, when it came to, to what I, what I wrote here in the book about, you know, do you love to win or do you hate to lose? It was, it was actually simply, um, it was another jeterism that he would go around and ask people, Hey, love to win, hate to lose, love to win, hate to lose. And what, what, what our data that we pulled out in a very 
you know, general study here was that there were players that just liked to play the game. You know, just like I'm sure there's traders that just, you know, they like to trade. But then there's this other group that's very competitive. And their competitiveness uh, combined with their talent and with their instinct and with their desire to never go back to the place in which they started was 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 an energy and it was it was a power that they had within within them that actually made them a player you want on your team because they just had this relentlessness to even when they did lose or they did fail or they did get out as a hitter in a big situation they came back with a vengeance they came back we'd say to get even with the situation but most importantly get even with themselves but it wasn't through damaging psychology where it was killing them and holding them down and, and abusive to them. It, it just ignited a competitive fire within them where it dialed them in. Their focus became that much more intense and their results became, you know, kind of came with it. You know, they were going to succeed. So that, that's what drove me writing that. Do you hate to win? Do you love, uh, do you love to win? Do you hate to lose? Love to win, hate to lose. And, and that was really in its most basic form that that's what we were trying to figure out who the competitors were, but not in a forced way and who the guys just like to play were. And then you also knew how to manage them as a coach and you knew as a teammate how to handle them. It, it's interesting. You, you talk uh, there about sort of this fine line between, you know, having, having a genuine desire not to lose, but not letting it overextend into something that, that cankers or becomes negative or, or becomes uh, intrusive you know, I've seen that. I, I give the example sometimes when I speak of my of my after my first job, I quit my job to go out on my own, uh, and my boss said to me as I was, you know, handing in my res- resignation letter, uh, he goes, "Well, I guess you've given up on ever making any money," and mm. I, I, you know, uh, I, I of course have have made some money in the in the intervening ten years, and when I think about that, um, you know, I think about him and I think about that. But it's almost, it, it gives me fuel, but I'm not angry, right? Like, I'm not angry about it. I'm not upset about it. I don't uh, do it out of hatred or spite or anything like that. It's just sort of right. bulletin board material, if you want to use the, the, sports, uh, the sports term for it. So, yeah, it's a fine line, I think, in any kind of performance endeavor to find that rocket fuel to push you on to that next level, but not have it overextended to something that, that becomes so, so cancerous that it becomes an obsession. I, I think that's a really fine line to walk. Yeah. Cause you see a lot of people on the other side of that line. I'm, I'm talking about the ones that succeed in that thought process. Um, there's others that just dial up the intensity to a point where they become almost disabled as a player and it's crippling and you see it more times than not. You see it this time of year in the playoffs players that are great and they just put this immense amount of pressure on themselves and they start to implode. Yeah. I, I saw it in the Cardinals brave series. There was uh, you know, throat slashing gestures and lots of taunting and bat flipping. And it, it gets kind of ugly. Uh, you know, it gets kind of ugly and it gets, I think it, it, adversely impacts performance. So um, coach, I've written in my last book, The Behavioral Investor, I wrote quite a bit on the connection between the the body and the mind when it comes to making investment decisions, because I I find it to be an an underappreciated area of inquiry, how something as simple as you know, the amount of caffeine you take in, the exercise, you know, um, how, how hydrated you are, all of these things can actually play a, play a big part in how we make financial decisions. For the average person, what are some of the things that, that they're doing every day uh, that, that are having an impact on their performance, their mind, their body that, that they may not be fully appreciating? Yeah, well, I think that most people go through their day and this is going to sound funny, but I don't even know if they realize that they have a physical body. Hmm. I, I really don't. I think there's a major disconnect between what I have to do today and the to-do list and all the calls I have to make and the emails I got to get back to and their physical self. And actually what I've seen, I work with a lot of executives and professionals over 40 that for the first time in about 20 years, they finally pull their head out of the sand and they say, oh my gosh, what happened to me? 
I, my energy's down. I, how did I get this body that I now carry with me? You know, I, I've gained 25 pounds since college. What the heck is going on? So I work with a lot of people like that. And really, it's just through the, the years of being immersed in their career, chasing success, servicing clients, you know, the dinners, the, the, the networking events, the conferences, the, you name it, right? All these things. There's a major disconnect between the physical body and not just how it looks, but also how it feels and how it functions. And, you know, um, that's something that we just got to, we have to really get on top of. So when I say there's a, there's just this disconnect, right? So we got to get people to, to start to understand how what's going on in this body can have a tremendous impact on their career, right? So one of the things that I say to players, I say to the executives I work with is energy wins. So if your body is not being fueled appropriately from a, a nutritional standpoint, also from a mental standpoint and from a physical loading standpoint of exercise, you're going to have issues in terms of your efficiency, your economy, your productivity, you name it. Eventually, your body is going to wake you up out of your slumber and say, hey, something's not right here. Something's wrong. Again, we hope it's not some sort of a medical test that, that is the reason for that. We just hope that you wake up one day and look down and say, whoa, what happened? Or, hey, I don't feel good. Why do I have so much stress? We talked so much today about stress and anxiety. And then we say, well, what can combat that? Oh, exercise can combat that. But we don't give it the proper place. And I think part of the reason is why we don't give that the time of day, the exercise, is because a lot of people don't know what to do. So that's what I spend a lot of time on now is putting together plans for people that are not daunting, where it's not like, oh, man, I have to exercise all day or I have to do 60 minutes on the treadmill in order to get this this yield in terms of physical performance. There's a major, uh, I find it to be an issue as to how exercise and health is presented to the general population because it's always working on the edges. It's always extreme. It's always this detox, this cleanse, this keto diet, this boot camp program, this, you know what I mean? So there's always, we're working the end. But when, when we design programs for players, when I design programs for individuals, executives, leaders, it's where are you today, both mentally and physically? What's your capacity? What could you handle? What's your time availability? Let's start thinking about it. what do you like to eat? I can't tell you to eat kale if you hate kale. You're going to fail. I can't tell you to eat spinach if you hate spinach, right? So we have to come up with nutrition plans, training plans, recovery plans that are built and curated specifically for you. And that's how we close the gap between the extremes and what happens on the corners and create something that you actually want to do, can do, feel good about, and that has the results that you want. There's so many people today train and they don't get any results or they do some exercise and there's no results. If you're not seeing results, your plan is not working. So oftentimes what happens, then you quit and then you go back into negative mode in terms of your physicality, energy, and all that kind of uh, jazz. So. Long-winded, no, it's it's really good stuff. There's there's a couple of things. I mean that that comment that most people don't even realize that they have a, a physical body. It kind of took my breath away because it's so true. It's it's also so consistent with uh, what I saw when I was in, in clinical practice. I mean, I've worked in the business world for a very long time now, uh, but back when I was a, a clinician, I would have people come to my office. You know. Uh, anxious, depressed, whatever. And and the first thing that I would do is assess their level of activity, assess their diet and exercise. And I would, no joke, have people come to me and say, look, I'm drinking six cups of coffee a day. I never exercise, you know, and then say, well, I'm anxious. You know, I'm anxious and say, well, what, what can we do about my anxiety? Like, talk to me, give me some pills, give me some sort of mental exercises and I would say, look, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to reduce your caffeine intake and you've got to move more. And people universally scoffed at that sort of advice. It didn't seem real. It was too easy. It was too simple. So we're, we're so disconnected from our bodies. And I think we fail to realize the ways that our bodies and minds um, work in harmony. And then the other thing that I, I think you said that was great advice is to just, it's all about incremental behavior change. 
I think that, you know, the reason that only 7% of people reach their New Year's resolutions is because, you know, we've, let's say we haven't run a mile in, in a decade and we decide on, you know, New Year's Eve that now suddenly we're going to run an, uh, you know, an ultra marathon or something in the coming year. Uh, that's not the way you do it. You know, you start with a 3K uh, and then, you know, the, the 5K and then the 10K and on to the half marathon and so on. Uh, really powerful behavioral change starts in, in small ways that are consistent with things that you're already doing well or things that you like to do. So reconnect yeah, with your, that, yeah, you know, reconnect with your body and find something you enjoy in, in a small, sustainable way to get, to get going. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the key, you know, and, and when it's about coaching somebody and managing someone, I, I tell people all the time, listen, I'm going to give you a simple plan. I'm going to manage you, but most importantly, we're going to have a relationship that creates accountability but we want you to have fun doing this. And again, much like you talked about with anxiety and exercise, you know, you think about it, right? Those, those that of us that have dogs, what's the first thing when you, when you leave your dog home for a bunch of hours and the dog hasn't been out, the dog wants to explode out the door and burn off. I call it burning the top layer. How many of us are sitting at our desk, just spilling over and boiling over? What if you gave that dog caffeine and said, Hey, sit in this house for eight hours. The dog would go bonkers too. So there's this this whole issue in terms of stress and anxiety that's going on now. And a lot of it has to do with, again, excessive consumption of caffeine along with very, very little exercise. And when you put that combo together, it's lethal on, on the body's system. You have to get that body moving and you have to burn that top layer off, especially for those of us that are in high, high demand field. I, I was going to say high stress. But we create the stress. It's really, there's high demand and there's oftentimes a high ask of us from, from our superiors and or from our clients, but we create the stress. I, absolutely. Great advice. So I am actually this evening going to a church book club. It's a men's book club I'm part of. And as, as luck would have it, the, the book we're going to be discussing tonight is Moneyball. Uh, so it's a... Okay. An absolutely fantastic book. It uh, Moneyball, of course, exposed some antiquated beliefs in baseball. It helped the sport make a giant step toward being more scientific, more analytical. Uh, are there still any old-fashioned beliefs, though, that you see in the game that are holding the game back? Um, you know what? To, to tell you the truth, I, I, I look at it the opposite way. I look at it as if the game today has a very high potential of being crippled by so much data. Because what happens is, you know, baseball is such a sport of, of instinct and gut and reaction. So you can slow instinct, confuse gut, and slow down reaction when you give too much data and you try to make these players that, that are born and bred on, like I said, the, the instinct factor and reactionary factor you could kind of jam them up when you're giving them too much to study um we always used to say dumb players make the best baseball players because they forgot what they did yesterday and sometimes they forgot what they did the attack before so i'm not one that's against data but i i am actually against putting too much data and too much information in front of the player if they are not built like that and they're not that kind of player like a player years ago by the name of mike Mustina, who just got in the hall of fame this year many people may know him you know he's a stanford guy he loves information he loved data that was like man he was salivating for it but a player like a robinson cano wouldn't want that much it would be confusing for mariana rivera wouldn't want that much it, it would be confusing for him they just want to go out and play so i think for the game to have great success. It's, it's looking at data at one more level and say, who wants it, who needs it, and how much. And when we can look at it like that, now we're using data appropriately as opposed to just flooding it and pushing it on people that really may not even need it. Because what you're also dealing with, and I'll talk about this because a lot of people don't talk about the word talent, not just in sports, but even in business. There's people that have natural talent for their craft. There's guys that are great hitters, naturally. There's um, people that are great leaders, 
naturally. There's great traders. There's great people in private equity. You know, there's great financial managers. It just comes natural to them. So that that's not everybody. That's a certain subset. But they there's people that have natural talent. They may not need as much data to be great. Um, so we have to determine who needs what and how much. And and that's what I believe. So when you look at the game today, there's a ton of analytics and a ton of data, and it's great because it gives us more insight. We just got to be careful how we use it and who and who we give it to. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating thing to consider. There's there's research on on more data not being better uh, in the selection of of equities, right? In the selection of stocks, as well as in making gambling decisions around football. I'm, I'm aware of studies in both of those places where past past three or four pieces of data, uh, more data led to more overconfidence, more confidence right. to get the decision right, but no improvement in some cases. A deterioration in the ability to make a good decision. So it's finding that that optimal level of data. And I think to your point, uh, with the case of baseball, at least determining how the player best consumes that data and not letting it stand in the way of whatever natural gifts they may have. Yeah. And I saw that for years with Derek Jeter. He'd ask our hitting quote coach one question, you know, well, a question and a half, what's he throw? And the follow-up would be, percentage of fastball so how many what pitches does he throw so i know what's coming at me and then give me the percentage of fastball so i know if that's the out of those pitches that he throws well what is the frequency in which that ball will be thrown so if he's looking fastball and the guy's throwing 85 percent fastballs he knows in that count how many fastballs approximately he's going to see as he works the count so that's very simple data now, we needed the data to know how many fastballs and what the percentage was and how many pitches he throws, right? We need that data. But again, we, we distilled it down to player number two, Derek Cheater. Out of this data, what do you want? What do you need? Here you go, right? And and that is a great way to use information. It's It's a fascinating thing to consider. I've written about the power of simplicity when making financial decisions, uh, and I think the world of finance would be far better uh, if we relied on just a few powerful, simple metrics. Those who've read my books yeah. and the ones I'm a fan of. It's a, it's a really neat point and a great anecdote. So uh, one, one, okay, I, I have a question and a half now. So before, before yeah. we wrap up, uh, you, mentioned, yeah. you, you mentioned Mariano Rivera, <clears throat> probably the greatest closer of all time, and someone who showed an extraordinary amount of poise in some of the toughest situations imaginable. Uh, in, in your book, you cite a conversation with him where he gave you his three-step process for calming his mind. Could you share, share a bit about that with our listeners? Yeah. So uh, before I get into the details of that, I'll, I'll just start off. When, when you think of Mariano Rivera, most people think of, obviously, you know, the dominance and the greatness. But what I think about is uh, a convicted guy that can care less what you think about him, what you feel about him, he is on his own mission and he's on his own path, right? So he's cleared all those obstacles out. But when, when it comes to Mariano Rivera, as a, as a young kid, I remember in 1995, he, he cut his teeth in the big league. And here I was at the time, I was still in high school. And I, I was fascinated by this guy, little skinny guy, totally, you look at him, you're not impressed. And then he leans back and he throws and it was like, wow. And every year he got better and better and better. So as a young guy, you know, in high school, I'm still trying to figure out who I am, what I do, what my confidence is, if I have any yet. And I, I became inspired by this player. So years ago, about five years, five, six years ago now, um, actually it was probably six years ago because he just got in the Hall of Fame. And I was at his house. He invites me over. Hey, can you come over and stretch me? We live right around the block from each other. So I'm in his basement and I said, Mo, I got to ask you this question. I've been dying to ask you since 1995 and I got to finally just ask you now that I got you. And he goes, what? You know, again, attitude problem, but, but he's a great guy. And he says to me, uh, what, what do you want to know? And I said, well, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you go into the game, take a situation and get it done? And he goes, buddy, I do three things. Number one, I quiet the noise. Number two, I slow everything down. And number three, I throw one pitch at a time. 
quiet the noise, slow it down, one pitch at a time. Quiet the noise, slow it down, one pitch at a time. I said, wow. Like, he just totally took the process and simplified it. And he said, I control the variables. I control the noise. I control everything when I'm out there. And and it's like, goes totally against what you think. Like, I, I control everything. You control nothing. But the way he looks at it is he was in full control in that moment. And the greatest thing about Mariano is like when I said, well, what about the big situation? Game on the line, World Series. And he says, buddy, every situation is the same. We decide what's a big situation. I work with a lot of traders. They decide what's a big trade. They're making that up and putting the classification of big trade on that. You know, so we decide. And when I heard that, I, it changed the way I go about my life. There were no more big speeches. There were no more big conversations. There were no more big anything. Everything was the same. And when I was able to interpret what he said and apply it to my own life, everything changed. And I found that to be really amazing because you can take, here's a guy that's a pitcher and you can take his approach into your everyday life and use it for your advantage. And it gives you a competitive advantage in so many ways. You're no longer playing the same game as other people with worry and doubt and fear and all that, because you're not, every situation is the same. Does it creep up at times? Yeah. But, but it's definitely much more harnessed and controlled. And that was an, an incredible lesson from a, from an incredible player. It is an incredible lesson. You know, I love it. When I read that, I love the the flip side of there being no big situations is in, in some respects, there's no small situations either. You know, it's just right. everyone, uh, everyone who achieves the kind of performance that you speak about and you write about goes through life with this one pitch at a time mentality. And as a psychologist, I could tell you that that every theoretical orientation, every theoretical approach to psychology has in common uh, this idea that that heartache and depression and anxiety and loss are are built in the worrying about the future and fretting about the past, both of which are out of your control, but that real success in any endeavor comes by focusing on this one pitch at a time. So it's a pretty profound life lesson to to learn when you're when you're stretching out one of the greats. Um, yeah, and. And I just want to add this last piece to this, but can you imagine going through your life completely convicted? Yeah. Like you're, you're in his mind, he's blowing through you. Like he's going right through you. You, you are, you know, and again, we're talking about sports. So there's definitely an alpha dominance in a me versus you, David versus Goliath type situation that may exist. But, but he is in everything that he does, whether it's making a decision, it's, it's, you know, we were making a call one time for him and some guy was giving him a run around and he right away it's saying, okay, that's great. Now who runs the hotel? Okay. Please get him on the phone. It's, it's, I don't have time for this stuff. I got to go right to the top. Right. So there's living with this conviction and, and that's the energy that, that he possessed and brings with him in everything that he does. It's not forced. It's not this again, fake alpha you know, chest puffing alpha that it's just, it's become who he is. So my, my half question, my consistent with, uh, consistent with Jeter's one and a half questions. My half question is I, I want you to close our conversation by just giving us a peek inside, uh, inside the locker room after that 2009 world series win. What, what was it like? What was that day like for you? Well, for me, it was, it was a really interesting uh, chapter in, in my book. Again, I grew up a New York kid. I grew up a fan, you know, my parents are both teachers, so we didn't get to sit on the field. I used to have to sit in the nosebleed section and my dad would always say, Hey, when the rich people leave, then we can go down and get closer to the field. So it was an amazing journey to see this team win in the nineties and to be a part of it with this core four, you know, of, of Jeter, Rivera, Pettit, um, and Posada and actually win with those guys and learn what it is like to actually win at the highest level of something. You know, for so many of us, when was the last time we won? You know, for some people, it could have been literally high school. Um, it, 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 it could be so far away that we forgot how good winning feels. Um, 
And and for me to be a part of that and watch that last out take place and watch grown men who left it all on the field every game all year celebrate victory, that was amazing. Because I know people today, and I'm guilty of it at times, I don't celebrate my victories. And to actually see everybody, the energy go from where we're pushing, 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 pushing this boulder up the hill to finally getting to the top and watching that thing just roll down and move on its own. And we were able to take our, our foot off the gas for the first time in 162 days and 162 games, rather. That was amazing. And I will say this, you know, the, the one of the most amazing parts of it was just not having to be on to say, wow, we did it. We did it. And it was like this relief and all this pressure off our shoulders. And, and one of the things I use my executive is travel light, travel light. And in that moment, I experienced as an adult what it felt like to be very light for, for that night and for the weeks, uh, for the weeks ahead. And it was, it was amazing. Perfect. Something uh, every every little kid who watches baseball has dreamt about, something that every baseball fan has imagined. Uh, you got to live it, and thank you for sharing that experience with us. Uh, Coach, you've been incredible. Thank you for your insights into human behavior, into peak performance, and for some really uh, special anecdotes about some of our favorite players. Uh, if people want to learn more about your work and your book and your speaking, where can where can they find you? Yeah, so uh, my, my headquarters is at DanaCavalia.com, and then I, I host a book on Amazon. So I'm, I'm pretty accessible. I do a daily blog that talks a lot about this, you know, this sort of stuff. It definitely has more of a sporting twist to it, um, leadership, you know, personal development, personal health, fitness, et cetera. So, um, you know, I, I'm here for people. If anybody needs anything, DanaCavalia.com. Okay, perfect. Coach Dana, thank you again for your time. Thank you. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents, including Park Avenue Securities and the Guardian Network. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable, and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian copyright is a registered trademark of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2020 Guardian 2019-90886, expiration 12-21.